Grab a Bible, if you will, and open up to Luke chapter 4 this morning. Uh, If you were here last week, you remember we were in the genealogy of Jesus. And uh, since it was a genealogy, it's a little easy to forget what actually came before in this uh, story-wise. And so just before that was the baptism of Jesus, where we see that the, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove upon Christ and remains upon him. And, and the Father tells Jesus, the Son, you are my beloved Son. And so then our passage today is just picking up right after that, right after the baptism, immediately following that. And so I ask you to follow along as we read. We're going to read all 13 verses of our passage this morning, um, and we're going to be beginning there in chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear, up, bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Through the Holy Spirit, please enlighten our minds this morning. Enlighten them to understand this passage where we see Jesus being tempted by the devil. Help us to see here what great love the Son has for you. And what great love he has for us and this glorious obedience of his. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the... The first two verses of our passage are really just explaining the situation to us. And it's important that we understand this, this situation well. We're, we're reminded here that, first of all, that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the last things we saw previously before the Begots, and that's what we see here. Uh, and then the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness for a purpose. For a purpose that doesn't generally fit the way, uh, our idea rather, of what the Holy Spirit ought to be doing or what we think the Holy Spirit might be doing. He leads Jesus to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. Now, if that number sounds familiar to you, it is for two reasons. First of all, 40 days is how long Moses was upon the mountain with God before receiving the Ten Commandments. And the Israelites also, it sounds familiar for you because of this, the Israelites, after being delivered from slavery in Egypt, wandered in the wilderness, not for 40 days, but for 40 years before they reached the promised land. And so what we, what we see here is Jesus then being led out into the wilderness to, to accomplish what, what the Israelites could not accomplish. 
Namely, to live in grateful obedience to God. And so then, the specific wilderness here that's being spoken of is this uninhabited region that's between the, the hill country and, and Judea and, 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 the, uh, uh, and the Dead Sea. It's an area that actually had a name. They, they would call it uh, Jessamon, which may or may not be with the pronunciations, if you know me well. Uh, but, but what it really means is it translates to this word, the, de- the devastation. Because that's the kind of thing that happens when you spend time out in this area. It's this dusty, dry area with very little plant life. It's, it's in many senses just an absolute anti-Eden. Now, before we look at the temptations themselves, I, I want you to see something here. You, you might have already noticed it, but, but, but Jesus has never sinned. Ever. He is absolutely, perfectly holy. And here the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted to suffer. And it's all part of God's will. One of the things we're we're seeing here is that, that when we experience suffering and frustrations, when we experience pain and heartbreak, deep sorrows and temptations, when life just stinks in, our, in any other number of ways, we, we can't assume that, that this is some discipline of the Lord on our lives. We, we can't assume that, that this is us outside the will of the Lord. We just can't. Because remember, you know, God who is sovereign has his reasons for this sort of suffering in our lives. At, at times, uh, the reasons are related to strengthening our faith in him, our dependence upon him. But, but just as often, the reasons are absolute mystery to us. We don't know. And so then he's being tempted by the devil. Uh, the word devil here is not one that we're real comfortable with as modern people today, but it's being translated from a Greek word, diablos, which you probably recognize from just the Spanish use of that word. Uh, it, it comes from the Hebrew word uh, Satan, which is why you get all three of those, Satan, Diablo, and, and devil, as a word to refer to this, this individual, this person. Uh, the other thing we see in Scripture is that the devil is real. He's a mighty fallen angel, but still a created being. One of the greatest mysteries in history, I think, one of my kids have asked, I've asked, most people I know have asked at some point is this, is why doesn't God just destroy the devil the moment he falls, the moment, the moment he becomes an adversary? But I guess if we're going to ask that question, we could also ask, why doesn't God destroy Adam and Eve the moment that they fall? And I, for one, as a, a human, am very grateful that the Lord does not do so. And that he lets humanity continue on. That he rescues us. Uh, the devil hates God. And so he comes uh, to tempt Jesus three times. And, and, and then we're going to look at the, the first temptation there. Uh, let me ask you, is this thing cutting out a lot though? Is it, is it easier? Can you hear me if I just am loud? Yes. Young people don't count. Can some of you older people hear me? <laughs> All right, so, so Jesus is fasting. That's what's going on here. And what that means is that he is intentionally going without food. I know that's a really strange concept to us. Uh, just intentionally going without food. And the point of fasting is to remember that everything we have comes from God. So that, so that we can better understand just how utterly dependent we are upon God for everything in our life. And you see, it's, it's accompanied usually with prolonged prayer. Anytime we see, see Jesus do that, anytime we see Christians doing it, that's what's going on. <clears throat> and, you, and you might wonder, you know, do Christians fast? 
We do. At least we should be fasting. It's, it's one of those things that uh, isn't, we don't have set times, we don't have set durations that we're supposed to fast. But in Matthew 6, 16, we're, we're taught how we are to actually fast properly. And you can look at that later to, to see a little bit more about that. Um, so I'll tell you, many of you know that I, I came to faith in high school. And, and I can remember learning about fasting my, my first year, my freshman year of college. And I thought, hey, I'll do that. That sounds wonderful. And so for my plan was four days, I'm going to drink water, but no food at all. And I will say that it is not easy at all. We're talking about a four-day commitment. By the end of day one, I was absolutely starving. But by day two, I'd become so grumpy that I could hardly talk to anyone without being mad at them. I couldn't really focus on prayer. I couldn't focus on reading. It was so difficult. By day three... I quit and ordered a pizza. Absolutely done with this. Now, I don't believe that I've ever said a prayer before food that was more genuine than that moment of, of just how thankful I was to have food before me. And, and even though I failed miserably, I will say that those two and a half days have always given me just a teeny tiny bit, a little taste of what Jesus went through those, on that 40-day fast. And I'm telling you, just a tiny little bit of it. Um, because that's a long time, right? Right? 40 days. I, 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 for one, when I first read this, I thought, ah, that must be the first miracle of Jesus because a human can't go 40 days without, without eating. And, and what I, I've learned in my research is that it, it, is, um, it, it's not, it, it is absolutely possible for a human to do that. In fact, if a person is healthy, if they have muscle at the beginning before they start, if they're drinking water along the way, a person can actually go eight weeks 56 days without eating food. You won't be doing well, but it's possible. Uh, and, and, I, and I say this because it's important to know, right? Because this isn't the first miracle of Jesus happening here. He will do miracles later, but this isn't it. And it's important to know because Jesus is fasting here. This is him in his humanity, his humanity being absolutely pushed to the brink. He is suffering and he's facing temptations as, as a true man. A true man. That, that's why in Hebrews 4.15, Jesus says, uh, for we do not, or not Jesus says, that says of Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then verse 2 here ends with one of the most obvious statements in all of Scripture that I couldn't just pass it up. After 40 days without food, what's it tell us? Jesus was hungry. You think? <laughs> hungry. And so then here is the devil, and, and he starts by asking God this question, if, if you are the Son of God. He's going to do that again when he tempts him one of the, second, one of the later ones. He, he's raising this question to Jesus, this question of maybe, maybe you are not the Son of God. He's sowing the seed of doubt. He, he's saying, didn't the Father call you his beloved son? And, and here you are, here you are, so very hungry. Is this how a father treats his beloved son? It's this question, right? If the father loved you, if, if he'd feed you. And he's not feeding you. And, and, and he's not feeding you. Clearly he doesn't love you. you. You're not his beloved son. And so it's time for you to look out for yourself. So why don't you just, why don't you just command this stone? You can picture, right? Why don't you just command this stone become bread and you can satisfy your needs right now? 
Does that playbook sound awfully familiar to you? We've seen this before, right? You, you remember this? Back in the garden, this, this was how Satan first defeated the first Adam. I mean, I mean pardon my pun, but, but it's his bread and butter play, right? Uh, to sow the seed of doubt, to, to make him wonder, does God really care? Are you even really who God's word says you are? One of the things we, we looked at last week, if you don't remember, we said that Jesus is the second Adam, and Jesus is the second Adam. And, and if at any point Jesus were to fail, he'd become a guilty sinner, just like the first Adam, and his relationship with the Father would be, would, would be severed, and he could not be the perfect sacrifice that was absolutely necessary for us. And, and, and still, we, we can rejoice for, for Jesus is everything that Adam should have been. Jesus is the perfectly obedient Son of the Father. You see, Jesus is undoing the curse. He's, he's succeeding in the place where Adam failed before. Jesus is going to say later in, in John 8, chapter, 20, or chapter 8, verse 28, He says, I do nothing of my own authority. He's always doing the will of the Father. That's why He doesn't do anything on His own authority. And yet here he is being tempted to use divine powers for a purpose uh, that only serves himself. To turn this stone to bread and thus satisfy his deep hunger. And yet he resisted. He resisted as a genuine man. You really understand what I, what I mean by that? He resists not by some superhuman divine ability, Right? He resists not, not, not because of his divinity, uh, not, not, but he's really being tempted here. He really understands the temptation. There's a big part of him that really wants to do that in some regard. But, but he resists in the weakness of his true humanity. And so he, he quotes of Deuteronomy 8.3 8, to the devil. Uh, we see it there in verse 4. You can look down and see that he says, Man shall not live by bread alone. And if we don't live by bread alone... What do we live by? See, he's quoting from, from Deuteronomy. Again, the, they're out in the wilderness, right? The, the full verse of Deuteronomy is in this context of Israel wandering in the wilderness, hungry and complaining. And the verse there that he quotes from begins with, uh, with saying to the Israelites, he says, God humbled you and let you hunger. And then the verse actually ends by, by, by saying this. It says that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by, here it is, man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, he, he, he's trusting God's good care of him. He's trusting what the Lord has said to him. Even as he sit here, even as he stands there, sitting there, remaining hungry. And so Jesus wins, and so the devil begins this new temptation. If that angle didn't work, we'll try another angle. In an instant, he shows Jesus the, the kingdoms. He shows Jesus the cultures, the structures, the treasures, the military might of all the world's great civilizations. And he tells them this. Uh, he tells them all the glory along with this that, that comes with it can be yours, and all you have to do is worship me. And you might think... Yeah, but Jesus is going to get that later, right? Yeah, but the temptation here is, is this way would be painless. This way he could skip the cup of God's wrath being poured, about, poured upon him on the cross. Uh, this way, as, as Philip Ryken puts it, Satan was tempting Jesus 
to seize the crown without suffering the cross. And still, it, it makes you wonder, does the devil even have the right, the authority to, to, to give him this? And, and the, the truth is, in some sense, he did. Once, once sin entered the world, he's given some authority in the world. And in John 12, 31, Jesus is talking about the devil, and he, and he refers to him as this. He says, the ruler of this world. He, he has power because God permits him to have power. He has God's permission, but not true possession of the world. He's absolutely limited in his authority because his authority is derivative of, of God's absolute sovereignty. And once again, Jesus responds with the word of God. He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This is both a reference to the first of the Ten Commandments and a, a quote of Deuteronomy 6.13, which, which says in fullness, it says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve. And, and Jesus stays the course, and, and He will pursue the kingdom in the Lord's timing, in the Lord's way, even though it's going to include much suffering. And so then the devil regroups. And for the third temptation, he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. It's not real specific what it is. It's either the area above the sanctuary, which is very high, or it's a, it's a, a porch-like structure that's above the Kidron Valley, 500 feet above it. So that's what? Almost two football fields. Um, a, a great height. And, and this time, the devil quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12 there. He, he's quoting to Jesus. In a sense, he's, he's using the scripture to, to, to try to push Jesus to something. He's saying, you know, you, you say you're committed to God's word. I, I see that. Well, how about you keep this word? How about you test God and see if he'll actually do what he says he'll do in this verse? He, he wants Jesus to presume upon the Father. He wants him. It's this, it's this almost sort of ultimatum that, that upon Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, do this, and we'll see if he saves you, and then we'll know one way or the other. And Jesus responds again with the Scripture. This time, Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And with that, Jesus' point is quite clear. Do not willfully attempt to force God to act. Yes, God often does fix all sorts of messes for us. But, but don't test him by creating that mess on purpose just to see if he will. And so Jesus resists all three of the devil's temptations. The, the self-serving provision, the devil worship, and, and putting God to the test. And, and then we see a reality of James 4, 7, which teaches us, tells us, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We see it there in verse 13. And when the devil <clears throat> had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Yes, the devil will return when he believes there's a better opportunity, but, but for now the devil flees from him. Uh, and from the fourth chapter of the book of Matthew, we know that after this moment, uh, the angels sent by the Lord God uh, come to Jesus and they minister to him. It's a time of encouraging him, a time of, of caring for him. And so that's the actual passage. But, but we ask ourselves, what do we learn from this? What's the application of a, a passage like this? Right? You, you kind of look at it as, I, just, I shouldn't turn stones into bread, right? Clear application. No, not really. You're not capable of turning stones into bread. But, but there are some really amazing applications here. For, for one, this teaches us how we are to view temptation to sin. How are we to look at this and think about it? 
And, and, and let me put it this way. I mean, there's a part of you can look at it and say, you know, are these really that big of a deal? Do any of these things really matter? Turning a rock into bread and eating it? You're hungry, so what? It's not like that's going to hurt anybody, right? Or even the, the, the devil worship, right? It's just for a moment. Jesus didn't even have to really mean it, right? He just had to say it. And, and this leap off the temple, isn't that just a leap of faith expecting God to save him? Aren't, aren't those the, the type of questions that we start to ask when it comes to sin in the world? Or rather, the world begins to ask us as we consider these things. Are these temptations really that big of a deal? And the clear answer is yes. Yes, they are a big deal. Think of anything, we as a, a Christian culture, subculture, we, we view sin too lightly today. See, the, the temptations brought before you and me, they, they often appear to be trifling and unimportant. And, and we need to understand that, that any disobedience to God is nothing short of rebellion against God. Because God determines what's right and wrong, not, not some collective think tank of our, our peers. And so let us desire the will of the Lord Nothing less, nothing more. We can also learn here from how, how quickly Jesus rejects these. It's immediate. He doesn't ponder the temptation, right? He rejects each immediately because he knows what God desires of him, and his heart is set on obedience to the Lord. As a, as a parent, when you hear a big crash in some room on the other side of the house or in the next room over, uh, you, you begin to head that way. It's just kind of your responsibility as a parent. And, and you see the mess, and, and you begin to think, you know, right off the bat, you ask your children, what happened? If they're doing something wrong, and that's ultimately what happened, there's this temptation to lie in the moment, thinking maybe, maybe we'll escape whatever discipline this has. But, but as a parent in that moment, the only thing you really want is, is the truth in that moment. When our children were younger, we, we learned that if they intended to tell the truth, they would answer immediately. But when they pondered that question, that simple question, what happened? You know, what happened 30 seconds before I got here? When they start to ponder that, that's when they were more likely to, to give in to that temptation and, and tell some lie or, or some half-truth. Uh, adults, we, we work the same way. The longer we wait to reject temptation, the longer we, we ponder it, the more likely we are to actually commit that. Christian, if you're serious about fighting sin in your life, you, you must be ready to obey the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit so quickly that you, that you don't even consider the sin. We, we get into trouble when we begin to ponder it. Don't, don't sit there and wonder, you know, could I get away with this? Or what would the consequence be? Or is it really that bad? You know, ask yourself, simply ask yourself, <clears throat> what does God through his word desire of me? And then do it. That means believing that, that God desires, what God desires for us is actually for our good. And that's where a lot of this breaks down for us. Uh, Tim Keller, it's a little long of a quote. I'm going to read it to you, though, slowly, since it is long. Tim Keller says this, If you want to understand your own behavior... You must understand that all sin against God is grounded in a refusal to believe that God is more dedicated to our good and more aware of what that is than we are. We distrust God because we assume he is not truly for us, that if we give him complete control, we will be miserable. 
Adam and Eve did not say, let's be evil. Let's ruin our lives and everyone else's too. Rather, they thought, we just want to be happy. But his commands don't look like they will give us the things that we need to thrive. We will have to take things into our own hands. We can't trust God. Sometimes our struggle to trust God are are in regards to the timing of, of God in our lives. God's timing into providing money that we need, or a job, or providing someone faith to believe the gospel, or to, to provide a much, long, a much longed for spouse. You see, the, the temptation in these moments is, is, is like the first one in our passage. It's to take things into our own power, to accomplish them ourselves, for ourselves. To get money, or whatever money can buy in a way that's dishonest. Or we take a job that requires compromise of biblical ethics. We, maybe we try to manipulate someone into confessing Jesus with fear or with promises of the good life. You know, we're, we're saying in that moment, you know, God, I can't trust you to change their heart, but I can maybe change their mind. Or we pursue a relationship or a marriage with someone who, who doesn't love the Lord. Or we pursue a, the, the physical pleasures of a relationship apart from the commitment of marriage. What I'm getting at is, is this. You really need to be asking ourselves this question, right? What am I working to get without waiting for God to give it to me? What am I working to get without waiting for God to give it to me? And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, for, for me, one of the things that I have really been struggling in this area with is, is, is the idea of receiving this building. You, you know we've got a generous donor who uh, we believe may be doing that for us. And yet the, the whole thing's a little bit open, up in the air. And, and I don't, we don't know for sure what's going to happen. And I find myself constantly having to remind myself to trust the Lord's provision, to trust His timing, to trust that He will do what's best for us. I have to remember to not try to force my will, but to just trust the Lord's will, to, uh, that He cares for this covenant community. And that means stepping back sometimes from trying to force things. I mean, that's, that's mine, right? And I share it so you know that, yeah, I, I totally understand this and, and a bunch of other ways as well. But, but I'm asking you, what, what are you working to get without waiting for God to give it to you? We also learn here that Jesus really understands our, our suffering and our temptation. That, that's why in Hebrews 2.18 says this, it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And we learn that the power of knowing God's word here, right? We, we learn that every time Jesus is tempted, he, he speaks, he, he fights the temptation with the truth of God's word. That's what he goes to. And we actually, he, he actually knows it, right? That's a very significant thing. He'd, you know, the devil didn't tempt him and he wasn't like, well, hold on, let me Google that. Let's see, Bible, bread, see what comes up. Oh, there's something in Deuteronomy. He didn't find himself at that moment. He didn't do this because Jesus, he took serious the call of Psalm 119.11, which says, I, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, in his life, it was a slow process. You think of it, 30 years of growing up in the faith, may, may be confused by much of what he heard in the synagogue as a child, but, but always listening, always reading the scriptures. So, so that as he soaked them in, they became knowledge in his mind. They became uh, available to him there in his heart. And see, Jesus hides the word in his human heart, and he fights the temptations of the devil by, by welding or wielding. 
I can't pronounce anything. By wielding that, what Ephesians 6.17 calls the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. J.C. Ryle, I love J.C. Ryle, he says, he says we should approach Scripture like this. Let us read it, search it, pray over it diligently, perseveringly and unweariedly. Let us strive to be so thoroughly acquainted with its pages that its text may abide in our memories and stand ready at our right hand in the day of need. The last little bit of application here is this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us, let us learn to actually fight and resist temptation. C.S. Lewis long ago said this, Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. You find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. What, what he means is, don't give in so easy. Right? The quicker you respond, the better. But, but even if that doesn't happen, don't give in so easy. You know, next time gossip is waiting on your lips, fight to remain silent. Fight to say something else. The, the next time you want to visit that alluring website, fight against that desire and keep fighting. The next time you want, you want to lie for, for some selfish pur- purpose, fight to tell the truth, even if it's going to be harmful to you, even if it's going to cost you something. Whatever it is, keep fighting. Keep believing that God is for you. Keep going to the Scripture for help. Keep asking the Holy Spirit to make you strong for the battle. These, these are battles that we can win because Jesus has already won the war. So one more thing and then we'll, we'll pray. Um, Christian, do you, do, you know, do you know that the application of a passage of Scripture to your life is not always the actual point of the passage? I mean, it's good and it's right to apply it even the way we just have, but, but the actual point is even greater. And the actual point of this passage is that, that Jesus here in the wilderness, as the Son of God, as the second Adam, he, he resisted the temptations of the devil. He, he succeeded where Adam failed. That's the point. And so he continues this mission, his mission to redeem his people. Meaning that Jesus is sinless. He can be the perfect sacrifice. He can be the the one who needs to be nailed to the cross in your place. And was. You see, if your faith is in Jesus, his his sacrifice and and his righteousness is applied to you. And so while we desire to be holy in our lives, we, we rest. We rest on the holiness of Christ for our redemption. For our making us, uniting us into the family of God, the Lord God Almighty for making us one of His. So we'll end with this simply. The, the Lord is good and His love is sure. And we see that in every step of His life and every step of His death and every, everything that He's done since His resurrection. Let us pray. Father, we are not the Christ. We simply are not. However, we are filled with the Holy Spirit And we are united to Christ by faith. And we we are your children. And so we know that temptation shall assail us all the days of our lives. We ask that you give us strength to seek you in those moments. Give us confidence because we are not trying to win redemption. That has been accomplished for us already by Jesus our Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.